now for Almost Famous, featuring local music and independent musicians from the South Shore, Boston, and New England on 95.9 WATD. Welcome to Almost Famous, 95.9 WATD, introducing you to independent bands and musicians from across New England, brought to you each week by Tiny and Sons Auto Glass. I am John Shea, and this show has been requested for a long time. And tonight, we're going to kick off the new year by taking a look back at the history of the Boston independent music community. And for the next two hours, we have a special co-host. That would be Brett Milano, Boston music journalist. Brett, good evening. Happy New Year. How you doing? Happy New Year, John. Great to be here. So for those who might not be familiar with you, give an introduction. I've uh, written about music for uh, a number of years. I wrote for The Globe in the 80s and was part of one of those guys that you would always spot at the rat with a notebook, you know, just uh, trying to take everything in. And, uh, you know, wrote since then for the Phoenix and currently in the Herald once a week. Did a book, which I wish you could still find, called The Sound of Our Town, which is a Boston music history. Uh, You can find it. It'll set you back quite a bit, but I am working on trying to get it back into print. So I can already tell this is going to be a fun and informative evening. So let's kick off tonight's show. We're looking back at the history of the Boston music community with the winner of the very first rock and roll rumble. That would be The Neighborhood. Yeah, in fact... uh, just recently, they put out a record about a year ago. They put out an album called Last Known Address, and uh, that's going to be, uh, I think, reissued soon. And those guys still got it, without doubt. Cool. Well, let's go to vinyl for this. This is No Place Like Home. The Neighborhood's kicking off Almost Famous Tonight, 95.9 WATD.
Follow Almost Famous on Facebook and Instagram at Almost Famous Radio. From 1985, again off of vinyl, Down Avenue, their girlfriend on Almost Famous 95.9 WATD as we take a look back at the history of the local music community from here on the South Shore and into Boston. My co-host tonight, 
is Brett Milano. Talk about your experience with Dan Avenue over the years. Um, they were a wonderful band, and I think they, uh, their singer, Charles Pettigrew, I think if you saw him live, you knew that the guy had what it took to be a pop star. I mean, he looked great. You know, you can hear on that record what a voice he had. And what Down Avenue were doing was um, very elegant and danceable rock stuff. And um, I think, you know, he did have a, a hit nationally as part of a duo called Charles and Eddie. Unfortunately, he became um, the victim of another pandemic that we had around that time. So we all we all miss him and uh, we all thank him for the music he gave us. And that is the voice of Brett Milano, Boston rock journalist who started off covering the Boston music community in the early 80s. What do you miss most about those early days that we don't have, you know, when, when there's not a pandemic that we don't have today? Well, I think what I miss the most is that there was um, a lot of other radio, not that WATD is not a wonderful station. We're so glad to have you doing what you do. But there was a mainstream radio in Boston that was playing local music and playing local rock, which sort of put that into everybody's consciousness. There were newspapers that were covering it, too. So it was kind of there in the mainstream culture of Boston and people that didn't know about uh you know, people that didn't even make a point of following alternative stuff would just hear these records and thought, well, I'm going to go to the rat and see what this band sounds like. They're on the radio. They must be pretty good. And so you had the situation where local musicians could support themselves pretty well and they could afford to pay rent in Boston and pursue their music and come here and be artists. And I think we're really missing the way it was doable for somebody in their 20s and 30s to come here and really make a go of it as an artist or a musician or somebody doing something left of center. You know, one difference was there was just more of it happening. There were more clubs. You know, Kenmore Square had two or three great clubs going on at the same time. You have to look a little harder now, but it's still there if you want to look for it. Well, let's continue on with our look back at the local music community. I know this is a band that you requested, Brett. This is the Pixies, 95.9 WHB off the Doolittle album.
Almost Famous. Don't miss an episode. Check out the podcast at almostfamousradio.com.
95.9 WATD. We kicked that set off with the Pixies. Here comes your man, 1989, off the Doolittle album. And you just heard Human Sexual Response, 1980. That's a track called Jackie Onassis. That comes off of a compilation, Brett, that I know you did the liner notes for back in the, the mid-90s called the Boston Music Scene, DIY, which was put out by Rhino Records. Yeah. And on that uh, compilation, you put an emphasis on the emerging punk scene. How do you think the Boston found its niche in between the punk scenes of London, New York, and L.A.? Uh, Boston, I think, was a little more maybe educated is, is is a word for it. I mean, there was a little more emphasis on kind of artier music. I mean, you had a band like Mission of Burma that would come in and they really transformed the scene because they were inspired by punks, but they played very well. I mean, human sexual response, too. They had a lot of technical ability with their three and four part vocal harmonies. So I think the way we responded to punk was we were a little bit more cerebral, not that we didn't get pretty down in the dirt sometimes, but I think there was a little bit of a, maybe a, a, a pretty smart sense of humor that showed up in a lot of Boston punk and maybe a little more musical sense of adventure that you'd find in a lot of records from here. You mentioned Mission of Burma. They also appear on that compilation. This is off a of beat up 45, though. Trem 2 is the name of the song on Almost Famous 95.9 WATD from 1982.
Almost Famous with John Shea on 95.9 WATD. Nervous Heater is Loretta, 1977, on Almost Famous Tonight, 95.9 WATD, as we take a look back at the glory days of the Boston music community of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I'm John Shea, and tonight being joined by Boston music journalist Brett Milano. So talk about your experience covering the Nervous Heaters. They were one of the first local bands I ever saw, because they started up, uh, they were one of the first wave. They started around 77, 78. They had a song called Loretta that, that you just played that I think everybody thought that song was going to be a big hit single. It certainly sounded like one. It was catchy as hell. It's, you know, it's a love song, so nobody's going to feel too put off by it. I think they got a little bit too much grief because they wound up going to a major label. They made an album that was a little bit more produced maybe than it should have been, but it really wasn't a bad record. And I think they did spend a number of years trying to live it down when people should have said, okay, you know, they tried a little hard on this one, but there's still a few good songs on here. That is Brett Milano, Boston music journalist tonight, joining me on Almost Famous. We are up against our first break of the hour. We have a lot more to talk about and a lot more music to share as well, right here on 95.9 WATD, so stick around. Almost Famous with John Shea on 95.9 WATD. Come and take a ride. I knew this girl couldn't read my face. I'm 21 and she thought I was 28. Cause I've been running for a while Baby You ain't the first But what can I say I know she's hurt From what that creep did outside He broke her heart And took her feelings for a ride Yeah Now I'm Maria But Maria don't care 
from 2005 there. They took runner-up in the BCN Rumble back in 2000 and uh, was signed to deal with Rykodisc in 2005. My name is John Shea. Looking back at some of the glory days of the local music community from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even into the early 2000s, my co-host for the evening, Brett Milano, Boston rock yeah. journalist. How you doing tonight? Oh, we're having so much fun listening to all these records again. And they still sound great. Yeah, and some of them are still, you know, some of these people are still playing. And uh, I, one thing I came to love about Boston that I didn't know it was going to be that way is that people, you know, people never crawl off into the sunset and retire. And I'm kind of living proof of that. And I'm glad you mentioned that because something that's stayed fairly consistent in the community over the last several decades is the actual community. What do you think it is that makes the Boston music scene a true rock and music community? To my extent, it's just that I think people, there's a lot of nice people around here as part of it. I mean, people do like uh, latch on to each other. If you like a band and you show up at the band's gig week after week, people will always see you standing there and say, yeah, you know, we're part of the same tribe. And I think that's one reason why so many of the bands flourished in the 80s and 90s is that there was you know relatively little backstabbing i think there were a lot of people trying to help each other's bands out and i think that is still going on today something else that i noticed from looking back at at that period of music is that there were quite a few prominent women in the rock community bands yeah. like our robin lane and the chart busters lizzie borden and the axes letters to cleo what was your experience with dealing with the, the women who rocked back in the day yeah i think we were ahead of the curve in terms of that. You know, Robert, Robin Lang and Lizzie Borden being two of the first were, were definite, definite trailblazers. And I think if you hung around Boston and saw these bands, I mean, not just with front women, but Lizzie Borden and the Axis were entirely female. Salem 66 originally were all women. Throwing Muses, three quarters women. I think you got over it being a novelty. You got over the idea that women shouldn't do it for any reason. And I think another big influence on that was um, from Providence, Tina Weymouth of Talking Heads, you know, and they went to New York to see a woman in the band being a musician, not the person out front, but an actual part of the rhythm section. And I, I think, you know, the fact that we were open to a lot of women getting into the fray doubled the number of great musicians that you could have. Well, let's take a listen right now. This is off an old 45 from 1981. Robin Lane and the Chartbusters, Don't Cry on Almost Famous 95.9 WATD.
Robin Land and the Trackbusters there, Don't Cry, a 45 from 1980. And I, I believe they were the 11th band to be featured on MTV back in 1981. So I hear, yeah. Um, that was so the t- the timing was certainly right for them because their their record would just come out at that time. And we were talking just before that about the prominent women in the Boston music community. And you said that we were ahead of our time in that period. Elaborate more on that, Brett. Well, I think uh, you know there weren't a lot of uh, there weren't that many female fronted bands out of New York yet. Nationally, a lot of the radio conglomerates were still being kind of pig-headed about playing bands that had front women even yeah there was a time when we were when people were a little backward about that but um i think when you saw some of the bands around here there was not going to be a novelty about women doing any kind of art including music because there was such a uh such a good community of artists and musicians of all stripes around here we have one from the dresden dolls coming up but a band that i know you covered a lot back in the 90s letters to cleo brett talk about them they were well. For, aside from being a great man, they were some of the nicest people around, which uh, which made made it always such a pleasure to deal with them. And Kay Hanley is still somebody that you can't not love. Kay Hanley. She still comes back to town uh, every, or would be coming back to town every year uh, for the Hot Stove Cool Music Show at the Paradise. And she gets on stage sometimes with other people, sometimes with with Letters to Cleo, and completely rocks it. This is Letters to Cleo off the Craft soundtrack from the late 90s covering another Boston band, The Cars, Dangerous Type, 95.9 WATD.
Follow Almost Famous on Facebook and Instagram at Almost Famous Radio. Coin operated boy sitting on the shelf. He is just a toy, but I turn him on and he comes to life. Automatic joy, that is why I want a coin operated boy.
Operated boy He may not be real Experienced with girls But I know he feels Like a boy should feel Isn't that the point That is why I want A coin Operated boy With a pretty coin Operated voice Saying that he loves me That he's thinking of me Straight up to the point That is why I want A coin The incredible Amanda Palmer back when she was with the Dresden Dolls. 95.9 WATD coin-operated boy from 2003. So I'm John Shea. Tonight we're taking a look back at some classic local tunes from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Boston music journalist Brett Milano is my co-host for the evening. We'll be checking in with him in just a bit. This is a band from Narragansett, Rhode Island, who had quite the following here on the South Shore in the late 70s and early 80s. This is long before the Eddie and the Cruiser soundtrack. They're Indy 45 from 1980. Beaver Brown with Wild Summer Nights 95.9 WATD.
Wild Summer Nights, Beaver Brown from their indie 1980-45. We have another hour left of great classic local tunes coming up tonight at 9, so stick around for that. Brett Milano, Boston rock journalist, will be co-hosting. Getting us there, Boston's definitive ska band before the Mighty Mighty Boston's Bim Scala Bim, off a compilation called Boston Does the Beatles. Rain is on 95.9 WATD. FM Marshfield, WBMS Brockton. This is the South Shores Radio Station, 95.9 FM WATD. Streaming online at 95.9WATD.com and with your smart speaker just by saying play WATD. And now back to Almost Famous on 95.9 WATD. And welcome to hour number two of Almost Famous, 95.9 WATD, as we introduce you to independent bands and musicians from across New England. I'm John Shea, tonight being joined by Brett Milano, Boston rock music journalist, as we take a look back at some of these glory days of the Boston music community tonight. Brett, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much. My pleasure. So give another introduction as to who you are, if you would. Well, let's see. I've been around uh, writing about local music for many, many years. I uh, wrote about uh, wrote in the Globe during the 80s, and that was uh, such a great time to be out covering music all the time. Did a book called Sound of Our Town, currently writing in the Boston Herald and uh, all over the place. Fantastic. You mentioned earlier in the first hour about 
the role that local radio played in the Boston music community, um, not only commercial radio, but college radio as well. Elaborate a little bit more about that, if you would, Brett. Yeah, well, you had, um, fortunately, the college stations are still there. And you had people at uh, ERS, MBR, a couple other stations that um, were just the people that immersed themselves in music and always made a point of finding out new stuff. And things would go from college radio onto commercial radio because you had two stations that aren't even there anymore. You had you had uh, WBCN and then you later had WFNX that were picking up on that. And the best example probably was when the cars first like recorded, came into WMBR, recorded some demo tapes that were cartridges. Um, WBCN, which was at that time a huge uh, nationally known rock station in Boston, there was a DJ named Max Ann. Uh, who heard some of the early car songs, heard Just What I Needed, which was only a radio tape, played the hell out of it on WBCN. Even though you could not even buy this record, everybody around town would hear the song on the radio every couple of hours. Everybody loved it. The cars got signed because they'd had this local hit in Boston with a song you couldn't even buy, and the rest was history. And actually, the original demo of My Best Friend's Girl was included on the remastered version of the original Cars album as a bonus track. Let's take a listen right here on 95.9 WATD. It's almost famous.
And that's the demo of My Best Friend's Girl from the Cars, recorded back in 1976, included as one of the bonus tracks on the deluxe edition of the first Cars album, and that was remastered a few years back. My co-host for the evening is Brett Milano, Boston rock journalist. Let's jump ahead a few years to 1983 and another song off of your request list, Brett. This is also a track off of the DIY Mass Ave compilation CD that you wrote the liner notes for, and they are the Liars. Talk about your experience working with them over the years. They probably are my fa- my all-time favorite Boston band. There's something quintessentially rock and roll about the Liars. The front man, Jeff Connolly, known as Mama Man. Even nowadays, you see him on stage, he's always feeling the spirit. He sings great. They have that kind of... Uh, primal urge that you hear in the greatest rock and roll and uh help you end to me is it's a classic rock and roll song let's hear it 95.9 w-a-t-d Famous with John Shea on 95.9 WATD.
From 1987 off the EP Tomorrow, The Strike on Almost Famous, a band that received, we talked about radio, some some decent airplay on AAF. Brett Milano is my co-host for this evening, and especially back in the 80s, we played Robin Lane earlier and talked about how they were one of the first bands played on MTV. The music video let fans who couldn't necessarily make it to the clubs see the bands, and there was that channel from back in the day, V66, what were those early video days like in your experience, Brett? I think anybody that knew V66, because it was only one, I think it was only a year that they even existed. But during that year, everybody watched it. What was great about V66 was they didn't even have that many videos. They didn't have all the stuff MTV had. So they played whatever they did have, which means a lot of local bands got their videos on the air and got even better known because of that. Uh, one of the great stories about a V66 is that the only Aerosmith video they had was for the song Lightning Strikes, which wasn't a hit. It was the single off the uh, Rock in a Hard Place album. And it, because it was the only Aerosmith song they had, they played it all the time. As a result, that song became so popular around here that Aerosmith learned to play it live and put it into their live shows when they played here. And I believe that's also what got them signed to Geffen. Well, it helped. I mean, I think they got signed to Geffen because everybody knew that uh, Aerosmith had been through its uh, wilderness years, if you will, when, uh, <laughs> when everybody was was overindulging and they had a, a couple of uh, a couple of ringer guys in the band. And then Joe, they got a new manager, uh, Tim Collins, who helped them get cleaned up. They got Joe Perry and Brad Whitford back in the lineup. And I think everybody knew that Aerosmith was back and they meant business. And sure enough, they were back. I remember uh, New Year's of 1984, they played at the Orpheum and they played a contender for the greatest show they ever played that night. That's on YouTube, too. Only the music. But you but uh, you can find that. It's amazingly good. I'll have to go searching for that. That's that's that sounds amazing. One of the bands that V66 helped break was Till Tuesday. Did you ever work with them? Yeah, I think I was uh, judging the Rumble the year that they did their big ascent. Yeah, I think anybody that saw them knew that they were destined for big things. I mean, Amy Mann clearly had she was incredibly charismatic back then. I'm sure she still is. And there was also, they had that polished sound that was going to do well. And there was a thing about the songwriting that you could tell was pretty thoughtful and pretty well advanced. And I, I don't think anybody was shocked when they wound up making some national waves, that band. I was listening to some of their stuff when they were the Young Snakes, and the, it couldn't be more than night and day difference Very between different. the sounds. Yeah, I mean, every, a lot of people uh, got to mess around with different kinds of music then, especially if you hear what Amy Mann did before Till Tuesday. Yeah, it was way more punkish and way more artsy than she became. All right, so let's take a listen to the original 1983 demo of Love in a Vacuum from Till Tuesday, 95.9 WATD.
Almost Famous. Don't miss an episode. Check out the podcast at almostfamousradio.com. Looks like an invitation 
Another band from the video age, 1985, doing the countdown, The Drive on 95.9 WATD. Speaking of bands that morphed into a different sound and a different incarnation, we mentioned that the Young Snakes morphed into Till Tuesday. The Drive later morphed into the Swinging Stakes, and I know you're familiar with, with that band as well, Brett. Yeah, and uh, that was a band that a lot of people didn't see coming because whatever we had in Boston, we did not have a lot of country rock, especially what you now call outlaw country, alternative country. The swing states were on the on the real tip of that, and uh, nobody really expected it. They did, they got a national record, and it uh, it wound up having a lot of good longevity for them. I only, I even saw them play about a year ago, and they still sounded great. Yeah, I saw them um, at the Sinclair a couple of years back, and they just sounded amazing. Yeah, I think uh, maybe if you know if the planets had aligned a little differently for them, they would have been huge nationally because I think they had a lot going for them. They got told by a whole lot of record labels that they ought to change their names, so ten points because they never did. Yeah, it's rock and roll. People tell you not to call yourself something; you call yourself that. Exactly. That is Brett Milano. He is co-hosting with us tonight on Almost Famous on 95.9 WATD. As we approach the second break of the night, we have a lot more to chat about and a lot more music to share as well right here on 95.9 WATD. Almost Famous with John Shea on 95.9 WATD.
Scruffy the Cat there, 1987, my baby. She's all right on Almost Famous tonight. Being joined tonight by Boston Rock journalist Brett Milano. Talk about your time with Scruffy the Cat. Well, it's hard to hear them without getting a little bit teary because uh, their front man, Charlie Chesterman, aside from being a wonderfully good songwriter, that's him singing. And, and he wrote that song, My Baby, She's All Right. Later on, uh, did um, Chaz and the Motorbikes, a solo band that went off for a number of years. And uh, we lost him a number of years back. He had a longstanding illness. And uh, I think uh, there were there were quite a few tears around the, around the Boston scene when we lost Charlie. So uh, wherever wherever you are tonight, we raise we raise a glass to you. Absolutely, I, I kind of I'm sad that I never had a chance to see them live, but I know that they were kind of the one of the definitive bands that played at the Lost TT the Bears place in Cambridge. Yeah, they played at TT's quite a bit. I certainly saw them at the Rat a number of times. They were they were a real hardworking band. They played out. They play anywhere and everywhere. That is Brett Milano, and we are looking back at some of the early days of the Boston rock scene from the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. And the Atlantics are next on the set list tonight. They're a band that uh, they actually, uh, I didn't get to Boston until 1980. And uh, they had uh, had quite a bit of success before I even got here because they made a, a major label album called Big City Rock that did that, you know, got, got some good reviews anyway, got them on the road for a time. And then they did a couple of singles that weren't even on albums. I think, are you playing Lonely Hearts? Yes. Yes. Uh, And uh, in Boston, that was the song. You know, it's it's a dance rock. I mean, you you hear the song, you want to get up and dance. It's incredibly catchy. It's got a great hook. And that was the one that everybody thought was going to do it for them. But, you know, the vagaries of band life kind of took their toll. They never put out an album that had that song on it. Wound up breaking up. But I think... uh, Nobody who was around at that time doesn't know this song. Let's take a listen. The Atlantic's 95.9 WATD.
The Atlantics, 95.9 WATD, Lonely Hearts, 1980, off of the DIY Boston Scene compilation. The man who wrote the liner notes for that compilation is my co-host tonight, Brett Milano. How you doing? Hey, pretty good, pretty good. Excellent. So um, moving on, taking a, a, a sharp turn from the punk and new wave scene of the 80s into the early 90s when the Cambridge-Somerville folk revival started to take shape. And I think one of the prominent participants of that was Ellis Paul. Yeah, he was a big, he was a big part of it and still is. Um, and I think that's something that's always endured in Boston. You do have a, a pride in that whole folk scene, folk world, because it goes back to the 60s when... Uh, Apparently, uh, Bob Dylan met Joan Baez at Club Passim when it was called Club 47. So uh, you always said, and the Rounder label was always kind of steeped in that folk world. And there was always a love for people who could pick up an acoustic guitar and play a really good song. You had uh, people like Tracy Chapman that wound up having some national success. And uh, the two people you're about to play who also had a bit of national acclaim. Yeah, let's let's take a listen right now. We're going to do Ellis Paul first from 1994, Autobiography of a Pistol. And then we'll uh, do an early Laura McKenna track from 2000 As I Am on Almost Famous 95.9 WATD.
Hi, this is Laurie McKenna, and you're listening to Almost Famous on 95.9 WATD. McKenna from 2000 As I Am, one of her early recordings. And in the late 80s into the 90s, there was sort of a resurgence of acoustic folk-based music, especially in the Cambridge Somerville area. Thanks to artists like Ellis Paul and Laurie McKenna, who we just heard also, Tracy Chapman got her start here, like you mentioned. And it all was sort of surrounded by Club Passim in Harvard Square. A lot of these things were all, you know, they all go on at the same time. And I think you can... uh you can be here and have different tastes and kind of ignore one thing and just get into your own your own side of things. But what, what's good about being in Boston is that there's so many different kinds of music you can you can absorb. 
Brett Milano is my co-host tonight on Almost Famous on 95.9 WATD as we look back at the Boston music community of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We talked earlier about some of these bands getting signed, and on occasion that would happen with, with some of the bands in the local music community. How often did you see that happen, Brett, and what effect did it have on their status in the community? Oh, I think people were generally proud of the bands that got signed because I think we understood that if you get signed, it's really the beginning. You know, it, it, it was the beginning of the battle, not the end of it, because you had to hopefully hopefully you get a hit record. But a lot of times you'd have to deal with the record label and deal with all the demands of being a national, you know, a prospective national act and try to get your music across and try to not get dropped the following year. But I think when uh, I'm thinking of the 80s, when people like uh, the Lemonheads and Buffalo Tom uh, started having some national success, I think for a lot of bands that was good because it brought the people, it brought the uh, it brought the record label talent scouts around, and so anybody else that was also you know also was pretty good might get a record contract too. So when I was putting the idea for this show together, I threw a couple of comments out on Facebook, and this is one of the most requested songs that we got. This is Face to Face. Did you work with them back in the day? Yeah, I saw them. I saw them. Uh, I saw them a few times, and I'll say Face to Face was a good band. But I think what, what the members have done since then is even better because I, uh, Laurie Sargent has been quite the prolific and gifted solo artist. Uh, Angelo, their songwriter and and guitar player, went to Nashville. Um, Working with Taylor Swift, he, I believe. Yeah, I, be, I believe he did. I mean, one thing I know that he did was he ghost wrote or co-wrote, but probably did most of the writing for uh, the Kings of Leon. Right. Billy Beard yeah. also has, yeah. was, you know, was heck, still heck, very prominent here. Heck of a drummer, big, 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 uh, you know, big, big influence on local music. And, and, and then there's Stuart Kimball, who, who played with that guy, Bob. Yes. <laughs> that, that would that would be Bob Dylan. Exactly. Yeah. Face to face became a real hotbed of of, uh, of talents and people that would make a big big impact on music in years to come. All right, let's do ten nine eight from Face to Face ninety five nine WATD.
Face to Face from 1984 on Almost Famous Tonight, 95.9 WATD. I'm John Jay. Now, normally, during this time, we introduce you to current bands and musicians from the local music community. Tonight, we're taking a look back at the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and even the early 2000s. As we wrap things up tonight, next week we're back with our regular show. Sam Luke Chase will be joining us on the tiny stage from Situate. My co-host for the evening has been Brett Milano. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks so much. So one last time, give an introduction as to who you are and, and what's available if, if they can track down that book anywhere. Uh, the book Sound of Our Town is pretty hard to find, I got to admit, but uh, you probably can find it. I have a book called Vinyl Junkies, which is about the... Uh, the lives and the passions of record collectors. Um, I wrote that back in 2001, and I'm proud to say it's still it's still in print, and uh, people apparently are still buying it. So um, I hope I hope you might people might want to check that out. Is it on Amazon? Uh, yeah, I believe it is. Okay, cool. I'll post a link on our page. So, with the state of the music community as it is with the pandemic, what are your thoughts on the future? Um, well, um, I would we I would love to get out and see in person a lot of the people I've been seeing uh, playing online or posting clips or releasing records in the last uh, in the last few months. I mean, thank thank the Lord for people like all the bands on the Rum Bar label and all the people on the New Red on Red label and every other Boston artist that's been just um, trying to keep themselves in touch and i'm looking forward to uh i'm looking forward to having another roaring 20s you know a hundred years after the first one like once once we all get to go out pack into the clubs hear a lot of music stay out all night long i think everybody's going to be doing that again so hang in there folks i am so looking forward to that so tonight we've been talking throughout the night about bands and musicians from the early days of the Boston music community, the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. I'm curious to know, Brett, what are you listening to today from the local music community? Well, uh, there's a band you're about to play that I think are quite good, uh, Lake Street Dive. I think this is a good, this is a real good example of, uh, of uh, you know, it's it's it ain't over yet. We still got people that can write something really, really, really grabbing, can still play it in a really interesting way and can still, like, Nick, you hear something and said, yeah, when's the next gig? I want to find out and go see him. Exactly. I saw them play many times downstairs at the Lizard Lounge. And I think I even maybe saw them play at Sinclair once or twice. So they they just put on a great stage show. Yeah. And uh, it's it's so great to see a band like that move up, move up from the Lizard Lounge to the Sinclairs of the world. Exactly. Lake Street Dive making do. Brett, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Be safe. We'll talk to you soon. Total pleasure. 95.9 WATD, Mike Joshua with Americana Rama coming up next. Stick around. To the next generation, Merry Christmas.